so wonderful to uh, have the privilege to be with you guys this morning. And uh, I'm glad that uh, Clay took that extra time because if history repeats itself a third time, which this is my third time being able to do this, then we will be out of here right on time still. So, and if you see my wife looking like she's bidding at a silent auction, she's going to be signaling me if I speak a little too fast. So if she's yanking on her ear or her nose, that's her. That's my wife, Rachel. She's my better one-third. I call it that because I, she weighs about has half as me, so I'm the two-thirds of the marriage on that side. And she doesn't get to be in here all the time, so it's nice to be able to look at you. All right, so what I wanted to do this morning was I wanted to see if I can inspire you to stir your spirit because I like when that happens to me, and so I thought I'd give it a shot, and I thought I would pick two light subjects uh, of your anointing and the gift of faith. And let's see if I can do that in 30 minutes, which is usually my runway. And I know there's been a lot of uh, prayer this morning, but since I've got the microphone, I'm going to do it once more. So if you can just bear with me. But Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. I thank you for your presence. I thank you, Lord, that you're with us. And Father, I will speak what's on my heart, but I just publicly yield my agenda to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And now that you've indulged me with that, I know that you've stood and you've sat. I am going to ask you if you're physically able to stand one more time before you get really comfortable. If you can't physically stand, that's okay too. And then I want you to, if you would, repeat after me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For I am anointed. Good job. Now you get comfortable. Your 30-minute nap is about to start. <laughs> I'm going to reference why we did that in a little bit. But I wanted to say, you know, I was researching a little bit about anointing, and I came across a pretty good quote that I thought explained it very well by a guy named Pastor Sunday. That's actually his first name. He's a passive of a mega church in the Ukraine of like 300,000 people. I wanted to see that building. And he says that the anointing is what enables us to labor without having to apply any special effort. And so we're going to get into that. And last time I preached, a couple months ago, I spent a lot of time in David, and we're going to get into that again. So as we, uh, when we look at the Bible and we get introduced to David, he's a young man out on the hills tending sheep. He's a shepherd. He's hanging out. He's in what we'll call his lover zone. He's playing the harp. This is the psalmist part of David, beginning to write things like, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Those experiences are what and uh, ultimately enabled David to write that. And what happens? So we see Samuel the prophet. Obviously, we're talking about the book of 1 Samuel. He uh, comes out of retirement, goes to Bethlehem, and scares the life out of everybody. And I think this is really funny. It's, it's a whole clandestine operation, right? He says, God, I can't go there. Saul gets scared and kill me. He says, no problem. Bring some meat. You go to Jesse's house. You have a big feast. And I want to anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel. And what's interesting here is that David was even discounted by his own father. He didn't even bring him in. So Samuel's looking at all the sons, waiting for the signal from God, and he gets through all of them, and, you know, is there not, is this it? Is this all you have? Because, you know, he didn't get the signal. And so they eventually they bring in David, right? They send him out from the field, and we know that uh, he gets anointed to be the next king of Israel. And what's important here is that, you know, it's not just the biggest and the strongest and the most successful and we know David was good-looking, but maybe he wasn't the best-looking son because his dad didn't even bring him in from the field. So it's not just those people that are anointed. It's everybody. So when, 
interesting again is when we see the anointing come on David, we see a few things happen. He goes back out to the field. He's tending his sheep. He takes a break every now and then to play the harp for Saul, calm him down, and then he's back in the field. But then what happens? We see a lion come, and we see a bear come. And of course, David kills the lion, and he kills the bear. Quick question. Is that normal behavior for a teenage boy? It wasn't my... I mean, Clay, you grew up with lions in South Africa, right? It's a little closer to the origin of this story, but mom, dad, did he do that? No? Okay. So we're going to agree that... Yeah, he thought he could. We are going to agree collectively that that is not normal behavior, okay, for a teenage boy. And on the business side of it, I get it, right? These are sheep. This is how the family had wealth. These were assets. These were resources. But, you know... And think about it from a business perspective. They must have had a, a built-in loss ratio, right? Eh, this one got sick. Sorry, Dad. Lion, you know, what do you want me to do? Chalk it up into the uh, loss column. But he didn't do that either. So if it's not normal behavior, was that David was naturally more courageous than everyone else? You know, I remember reading in the New Testament that the disciples walked with Jesus, and they saw everything that he did, but yet they still fled for fear of the Jews. So was David naturally more courageous than those who walked with Jesus, or did he slip into something that enabled him to have an anesthesia towards fear? It's called the gift of faith. What is that? Well, we see in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 that it is among one of the gifts of the Spirit that are given to us to edify the body of Christ. And that's important, right, because it's Christ in you and it's Christ through you. We need to understand that you are anointed to solve a problem. And in the area of your anointing, the gifts of the Spirit make up for the lack of human ability. And not only will they make up for the lack, they will exceed what anyone else can do in that area. Who gets the glory in that? It's God. But do people always know it? No, they always can't. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Because the last time I preached, I preached all about your calling, whether that was business or ministry. I spent a lot of time talking about the business side. And I just want to say... It's okay to be covert. You don't have to be overt. There's not a requirement to be overt. We just talked about Samuel coming in in a very espionage way into Bethlehem. He was completely covert during that whole time. He and God had a whole plan. And I think that we sometimes get caught up in outward signs. But God gives us demonstrations of the supernatural to establish credibility and competency so that we can go deeper within a structure to gain more influence until the time that we unveil the gospel. So let's look at a couple biblical references for this. Let's start with Esther. Does anybody know how many times the word God is used in Esther? That's right. Big zero. Thank you, Mother. Knew you would know. She is the great stealth operative, right? God isn't mentioned once in that book, yet the book is held in high esteem, as it should. Her story is revered. She gets into the kingdom. She gets into the administration through a beauty contest. She doesn't even reveal she's Jewish, which is probably smart, given who uh, she was with, until the right time, at which point she saves her entire people. And she was only able to do that because she had immense favor more than anyone else with the king. So what's the point? It's that the supernatural operating through you builds that platform for credibility and influence so that you can share the gospel anytime you want. But if you feel a compulsion to be witnessing all the time, you may be missing the depth and extent of what God's actually inviting you into. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. If you're called to evangelize, go do that. I'm not saying stop. I'm speaking to everybody else. (laughs) We never lose the perspective that we are here for souls in the kingdom. 
But sometimes, like Esther, we don't need to manifest who we are or what we're all about. A few other examples are going to be Daniel and Joseph, because that's also exactly how they did it. Uh, The Bible says that Daniel had an excellent spirit. And so he was very wise. He was operating in in power. But he, and if you read the, the story, he doesn't reveal it's God until he actually interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And the only reason he got to Nebuchadnezzar was because he has established all this credibility about interpreting dreams up until that point. Nebuchadnezzar gets so upset about this dream, he starts killing everybody that's supposed to interpret it. Somebody tells Daniel, he says, tell him to stop, I'm on my way. Right? And then Joseph. So I love this. And if you're a business guy, you have to like Joseph because he's like the patron saint of the marketplace. You literally cannot keep this guy down. He refuses to die. You know, his brother's throw him in a pit, he comes out into Egypt. Uh, they put him in a field, he comes out in charge of Potiphar's house. They put him in a prison, he takes over the prison. You know, you put him in the basement, he takes over the nation. You literally just can't keep this guy down. And the nature of Joseph by the excellent spirit is the Hebrew word yatir. And I was going to make a, a slide, but uh, ran out of time. So that's Y-A-T-T-I-R, yatir, which literally translates to that which juts out further. I'm getting the signal from my wife that I'm talking too fast, so I'm going to slow it down. Thank you, honey. Okay, so it means that which juts out further, which means Daniel and Joseph stuck out in a group of peers. It's also the same word, uh, the Greek word, hooperbole, that's used all throughout the New Testament for excellence, which literally translates to a throwing beyond. And in first century Greek culture, this would have been the weight, or we would call probably a shot put or a disc that would be thrown, and it would go conspicuously further than everybody else. So Daniel and Joseph were conspicuous in a group of peers. They were exalted to the highest place in the land and then at the right time reveal that they serve the one true God. So back to David and the gift of faith. What the gift of spirit is sometimes given you know, to certain individuals and other gifts are given to others. But it's important to know that everyone can still have opportunities where we receive the gift of faith for a particular situation. David you know, started operating in the gift of faith so that when the territory that he was the shepherd of was invaded by something that wasn't of God and it attacked or threatened that which was his stewardship, he had an anger that came upon him that enabled him to deal with something larger than himself so that he did not feel fear. He simply dispatched and destroyed what the enemy sent into his backyard. What was God doing? He was training him to kill a giant. How? by giving him experiences operating at one level of authority so that he would be confident operating at the next. So the gift of faith is so amazing. What we see is that that David wasn't motivated by courage. Remember, the disciples fled for fear of the Jews at one point, but at another point, they martyred. Gift of faith. So the gifts of the Spirit are a major part of your anointing. And when the gift of faith is on you, here's how you'll know, or, or here's one way that you can know. Uh, you'll have the confidence to solve a problem before you even know the solution. Let's look at David. He didn't have a strategy when he saw Goliath. The first thing he did was put on Saul's armor. And, you know, we know the story. He couldn't move around it. And I think the Bible said, he said, I can't, I haven't practiced in this. I can't use it. Meaning, I don't know how to fight in armor. I'm used to using a sling and a staff. Today is probably not the day to learn, right? He didn't have a strategy. He just, he had the confidence to know that giant has to go. He can't stand there and mock my God and stay standing. What he didn't have was a plan. So you need to know where God's called you to go. You need to know what you're anointed to do, whether that's business, ministry, or whatever. But even if you don't know 
uh, how you're going to get something done, when the gift of faith is on you or in you, you'll know that you can solve that problem before we have a strategy. Are you still with me? All right, making sure. I want to give you an example recently of when I had the gift of faith come upon me. Last month, Rachel and I had the privilege of going on a ministry trip with Ken and Michelle, and uh, we got to travel to a church that I've had the opportunity to go to three times, and it's been a real blessing, so thank you for letting us come again. But I got to see somebody that I had prayed for previously, and I was very excited. I had prayed for them about a pain that they had had and, and had left you know, previously or a year prior, and I was very excited to see them, and I, as I get to see these people you know, once a year now. And so I was talking with them, and I came to find out that the pain was back, and they had gone seen doctors and and medical doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists, whatever. And they've resigned that the pain was always going to be there. It was never going to leave. And something at that literal moment rose up inside of me, and the gift of faith came upon me, and I literally just blurted out, that's not okay with me. And I almost said, we're going to pray, and it's going to leave. And I didn't end up saying that, and I probably wouldn't suggest that you say that unless you know that uh, the gift of faith is on you. But, you know, I can't really explain it. I knew that that was going to happen. I didn't know what I was going to pray. I didn't know how I was going to pray. I didn't know what would happen when I did pray. I just knew that I knew that I knew when I prayed that was going to be, that was going to be done with. And when we did, it was. So we're going to be switching back and forth from the gift of faith to anointing. So hopefully just keep up with me. All right. So we stood and we all said that we were anointed. And I find it sometimes that not everybody uh, always knows where they're anointed. And so if you want to know where your anointing is, here's one way that you might be able to know. And uh, Charles Finney, if you're familiar with him, put it this way. The desire for something, the persistent desire for something, is an indication of what heaven is putting on your heart. In other words, desire for a believer, repeated desire, is a signal from your future about your calling down to your present. The fact that it's repeated means that there's a season that for God to manifest this in your life. When we doubt it, it's because we don't have confidence in our own desires. Now, Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. I think that sometimes people translate that as God is going to answer the prayers that are on your heart. I think a better translation is that God is the one who's planting the want to in you or the desire in you. God gives you the desires, not that God gives you what your heart desires, but rather God is the one who gives you the desires your heart is longing for. And as believers, we disqualify ourselves from stepping into our anointing. We talk ourselves right out of it because of our past. And worthiness, I think, in believers is a big part of this, right? Well, I'm not worthy, uh, I'm not ready yet, but interestingly, in the secular side of it, none of us will hold ourselves back from promotion, because of that, because of what I did in the past. In fact, we use the past as to say, I'm ready for promotion. Completely opposite. We self-sabotage and we want to agree with the devil as to why we're not qualified and then get into this place, ah, if I just pray a little more, I'll wait till I know more scripture, I'll wait till I make more money, I'll wait till I fill in the blank. Making sense? All right. Deuteronomy 8 says that the Lord tested you to humble you that you may know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That might have been slightly paraphrased. It's in verses 2 or 3 if you want to look it up. But what this story is about is the collective screw-ups of the Israelites where it was meant to teach them not to rely on themselves, but to rely on God. 
And then Jesus gets to repeat that last part when it's his turn in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. So I think seeing it that many times, it's about time that we understand that. Because we know that the enemy comes with guilt and condemnation. And we know, thankfully, that there is no condemnation in Christ, as Paul wrote in Romans 8. But the devil wants to disqualify us. What's interesting is that the more self-awareness you get, the harder this is probably going to be for you. Because the closer we get to the light, the light is Jesus, the more clearly we get to see sin. That's just natural. And sometimes I think when people actually get closer to God, they have a hard time being effective in the world because now they have consciousness of sin. Even John Edwards, the uh, great preacher of the Great Awakening, he was the third president of Princeton University, famous for sinners in the hands of an angry God, said, infinite upon infinite upon infinite, the more insight I get into the depravity of my nature, the deeper and more impossible it is. What we're saying is it's really easy to focus on sin. But this thing right here, has some answers for us. So if we could just read a little bit together. Uh, we're going to go to Romans 6 if you want to follow along. We're going to read verses 4 through 11. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that's going to be important in a minute, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our focus isn't on sin. We know that was been dealt with. Our focus is on him, and God only illuminates that sin so we can deal with it and move on. Then it becomes in our past, and that's where it stays. There's good news is there's other ways to over... There's things that you can remember to help you overcome this. So... How many know that Christ died for our sins? At least we've got a majority there. That's sound doctrine. If we, didn't, if we couldn't get a 50% ratio, then I probably would just step down. Okay. Uh, that's how many that know that the Lord uses you? A little bit less hands come up. That's important, right? We can see God use you. You get breakthrough in something. You know, we can see that something happens by the grace of God. Paul said in Corinthians, not I, but the grace of God with me, right? So Christ died for you. Christ moves through you. How many know that Christ is in you? Almost the same amount. I like fighting for hands to go up back there. Thank you, Tommy. This is an important one, so I want to look at a couple of scriptures to help, you know, sort of solidify this. Uh, Romans 8.10 says that, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed, in you. Colossians 1.27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right, so now we know Christ is in you. Now if I ask again, hopefully you'll raise your hand. But what's interesting here is once we know Christ is in you, the Greek word that, that Christ comes from is Christos, which means what? Anointed. 
So if you were doubting whether you're, and you said it just because I asked you to say that you were anointed earlier, it, now that we know Christ is in you, you have to be anointed. The debate is over. Okay. So Christ died for you. Christ moves through you. Christ is in you. But if we stop there, we are not going to get where we're supposed to go. We will not take the high ground. We need to remember that Christ died as you. Or the great mystery of the substitution on the cross is that Christ died Christ died did not to give God a way to put up with you, but because you were condemned to death, he died in your place, which means when he died, you died. Like we just read in Romans 6, for we are buried with him through baptism into death and raised with him, which means when we get baptized and we come, uh, go into the water and come out, it's identification, it's a representation of when he died, you died. Paul even said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What he's affirming is that when Christ died, you died. Now, this is the same thing in the legal system as double jeopardy, actually. Maybe a few of you are criminals that know something about that. And if not, I don't see Sam here to answer questions later, so I'll just give it a shot. What that means is, double jeopardy means that you cannot be judged twice for something. You cannot be convicted twice for something. You know, if you've been put in prison for something, you can't be put in prison again or a second time for the same thing. So when Christ died as us, that means we can never be crucified again for sin. So it's liberating that he died as you. And when you get to that place when you start to say, oh, I'm not qualified, and you want to agree more with what the devil wants to believe about you because of your past, we remember that Christ died as you and now we're dead to sin, we've been made righteous, and that becomes our focus. Still good? All right, I see a couple naps, this is good. The rest of you are on your way. So, we are anointed. Not only are we anointed to someone or something or some people, we are anointed to solve a problem. And we need to remember that the anointing is not for just like Bethel Church type signs and wonders. In fact, very few of us are called to walk that extrovert type of anointing. In fact, in the business side, most of the supernatural is subtle. It's a word of wisdom. It's discerning of a spirit. It's a word of prophecy. It's a word of knowledge. And God gives us these gifts to enable us to take territory because we aren't called to stay in the wilderness. We're called to take the high ground. We're called to take those mountains. Is that helpful? All right. I want to flip back to the gift of faith, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story that I personally love, and maybe some of you have heard it. Uh, it honestly gets me every time. When I said I wanted to stir you, this is something that stirs me, and I'm almost going to guarantee you that I'll cry at some point telling it. And I've just become crying more when I have so many daughters in my life. All right. So, there's a man by the name of Michael Kratz. He lives in Georgia. And he gets a prophecy that he's going to have a son. His son is going to be named Caleb and that his son will follow in the same political footsteps as his father. After getting this prophecy, he's running for office for the state senate in Georgia, and he has a heart attack and he dies. End of story. I'm kidding, it's not the end of story. Okay, so they get him to the hospital, and I have happened to be an EMT in a former life. I have done CPR. I've done CPR for over 30 minutes. I know exactly what an, an individual unfortunately, would look like in the situation. He's in the hospital, and he's flatlined. And if you know what that means, right, that means he has no heartbeat. It's a little machine that measures the heartbeat, and it's, eh, he's flatlined. 
And his wife comes in with that prophecy they were giving and starts prophesying the word of the Lord, saying, the word of the Lord said, you're going to have a son. We don't have a son. We're going to raise him together. You see that? Together. Together. When she's doing this, the security guards are trying to get her out of there. The doctors want to get her out of the room so they can continue the ineffective resuscitation efforts. And while this is going on, he's out of his body. And he's standing before an ocean, and he's talking with Jesus. And mountains appear. And Jesus says, you're called to go into that one. It says government. And then Jesus says a salient statement, but. Anytime you hear heaven say but, I think you really need to pay attention to what's coming next. But there must be agreement. In other words, he was saying, I've got bigger plans for you than you checking out and dying right now. If only that we could find somebody down there that would agree it isn't over yet. Meanwhile, his wife is still prophesying the word of the Lord. And while he's with Jesus, in the midst of these mountains, a great big mountain comes in the middle. And Jesus says, that is the mountain of my kingdom. Make no mistake, my kingdom is greater than all the kingdoms of this world. I'm going to pause on the story for a second because I think this is an interesting tension. What we have here is God's kingdom being over all the kingdoms of this world and God's calling you and anointing you and inviting you to go be an invading force of that kingdom in the midst of all the other kingdoms. I mean, where you're anointed to be. Okay, back to the story. So Phyllis Kratz is now back down in the hospital. And after 34 minutes without oxygen to the brain or a heartbeat, when Jesus says, you're called to go into that mountain, her strategy shifts from prophesying the word of the Lord to commanding the will of the Lord. She grabs her husband by the leg and says, Michael, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you to come back into your body now. At that moment, he left the vision, went back into his body, and the heartbeat came back on the screen. Beep, 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 beep. And the doctor, not knowing what to do, having never, received, never seen a resuscitation of somebody that had been dead for over 34 minutes, turns to Phyllis and says, now you've done it. <laughs> He'll need to be forgiven for that. What have you done? He hasn't had oxygen for over 34 minutes. What did you do? He'll be brain dead. And after some time passes and the dust is settling from the doctors trying to figure out what to do, having never seen somebody come back with a heartbeat after that long time, he says to her, he probably won't ever wake up. And if you get a miracle like that, the best you could hope for is he won't remember anything for over 20 years. Now, Phyllis is a very pretty lady, very funny. She's got a cosmetology degree. She looks at the doctor and says, you mean when he wakes up, he's going to think I'm 20 years younger? <laughs> at which point, she grabs him by the leg again and says, Michael, in the name of Jesus, I command your mind to be fully restored. At which point, he inhales and speaks, where is my son, Caleb? God had prophesied a son he hadn't had and the first words out of his mouth regarded the unfulfilled promise that God gave him. Phyllis had the gift of faith to know that the word of God was going to come to pass. She knew that she knew that she knew that it wasn't over yet. She didn't have a strategy. She just started prophesying the word of the Lord. Gift of faith. 
If you want to see the dreams that you buried and that Satan has tried to rob you of in your wilderness, you may have to move beyond holding on to the word and begin to command the very thing that God said would happen to be made manifest in your life. And death itself, including death of vision, death of marriage, death of friendship, death of relationship, death of career, death of fill-in-the-blank, death will yield to the power of resurrection life. And God will put life back into you at a whole new level. Are you ready for that? I told you I would be 30 minutes or less. All right. I wanted to see, you know, if I could stir people the way that I do when I hear something that's inspiring. So if that was you, I would invite you to stand one last time. I just want to pray. And if you're comfortable with it, if you want to just put your hands out, because that's a, a receiving stance. Father, I just thank you for your bride. And Father, I just release anointing over your people right now in Jesus' name. I release the gift of faith on those who need it for this situation in their lives right now in Jesus' name. Father, that you would illuminate the path and the anointing for your people where they're supposed to be and what they're called to do. I believe that Jesus is speaking to some of you right now. I can feel it in my stomach. There's a peace that you can feel right now. That's, that's him releasing something in you, into you right now. And we just come into agreement with that anointing right now, Lord. And we just say yes. We just say thank you, Father. We just say thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.